This is the 2015 Ontario Winter Bible School. Our speaker for this second session is Brother Mark O'Grady from the Tower, New Zealand Ecclesia. His theme this week is One in Christ Jesus, Complementary Roles. This is his third class, and the subject for this class is Wonderful Wives. Our reading was taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Brother Mark. Thank you, Brother Jason, and good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, there's something very wonderful and precious in the subject which we're going to look at together this morning, which is the subject of the role of our sisters as wives. Two simple little biblical statements which emphasise the importance of this topic. Proverbs 18, verse 22, Whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favour of Yahweh. And then Proverbs 12 and verse 14, uh, sorry, verse 4, a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. It is the strongest of all human relationships, the relationship between a husband and a wife, and it's also a covenant relationship. It's the subject of a vow that is made. So this morning, as we learn more about this one of the role of our sisters, we're going to consider just a little bit of what it means to be a wife from a biblical perspective. And we're going to look at some biblical illustrations of what the the role entails. Some of its challenges, some of its blessings, and some of its privileges. Now, of course, we have to say at the outset that not all of us are married. And secondly, for those of us that are male in the audience this morning, um, we can't be wives, literally, in that literal sense. But, of course, all of us can appreciate what these principles mean as far as the bride of Christ is concerned. We're all included in the symbolic concept of the bride of Christ and therefore we're all encompassed within that very simple statement this is a great secret but I speak concerning Christ and the ecclesia which is Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32. So what we want to do this morning is look at this this rather unique relationship from God's perspective. It is a relationship that he created. He created it for a specific purpose and with particular characteristics or features, and those are actually quite clearly spelt out in the Word of Life. God's implemented those features for some particular reason, and we want to try and understand what those reasons are as we look at this subject together this morning. Right, well, where do we start? Well, we're going to start by listening to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said to his disciples in Matthew 19, verse 4, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. And what the Lord's doing there is telling us in very clear and unmistakable terms that the principles of a marriage relationship are to be found at the beginning. And he took the mind of his hearers back to Genesis chapter 2. And he said to them, if we want to understand what a marriage relationship is about, he said, then understand what Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 1 are all about. All right, well, let's just note again briefly, it's a bit of a recap, but let's note again briefly a couple of the principles which we've already established so far in our considerations together. This time we're going to look at it from a slightly different perspective, not just the role of sisters, but particularly the role of a wife. We found that in chapter 1, the first statements of the creation record made the point that Eve, in many ways, is exactly the same as Adam. Both of them are made alike in the image and likeness of the Elohim. They have the ability to understand and reflect the glory of God. Both of them were given the same blessing, the same responsibility to be fruitful and multiply, to replenish the earth and to subdue it. So Genesis chapter 1 stresses the sameness as far as these two individuals are concerned. But I'd like you to come back with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to relook at a passage we've already looked at, because in Genesis chapter 2, the divergence of their role starts to become a little more apparent. We looked at the statement which the Elohim made of saying that it is not good, Genesis 2, 
Yahweh Elohim said in Genesis 2 verse 18, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And so we discovered that the very reason for Eve to come into existence was twofold. First of all, to be a companion. It's not good that man should be alone. And secondly, to be a help meet, or as Rotherham says, a helper as his counterpart. So Eve's role was not to be totally independent with her own mission, heading off to do her own thing in life. She was there to be both a companion and an assistance in what Adam's role entailed. So here, brothers and sisters, it's very basic. We have two foundation principles of what's involved. Companionship and assistance. And those are two of the fundamental roles of a wife in a marriage in Scripture. And when we see a happy marriage in the truth, invariably we find that both of those features will sit right at the heart of that relationship. A companionship together, they're good friends. And a working together in the husband's work and the truth. What a wonderful foundation for any relationship. To have someone to share things with, to not be alone. So husbands and wives, are you best friends? Do you enjoy sharing things together? Do we delight in each other's company? Then we find that in the ensuing verses, as we looked at in our first study, the process of the creation of Adam's wife was totally unique amongst all of the animal species. There was this very unusual process of opening his side and taking out one of his own ribs and constructing from that rib his wife, who was then brought to his side. It's a process which established some very powerful principles. Once again, we mentioned these briefly in our first study, but I want to just mention them again. First of all, on the part of the husband, it teaches the value of a personal self-sacrifice on behalf of his wife. It's the basis of their interaction together, that there is an element of sacrifice involved. Husbands who are prepared to give up something for the sake of or for the well-being of their wife in order to help her for her spiritual existence and well-being. So husbands, that might mean that there are things that we can no longer do. There might be things that we enjoy doing or things that are easy or comfortable or even lazy for us. But we actually have to say, no, we'll put those things aside because actually my interest here is in looking after my wife and helping her and her spiritual being, helping her in her growth and her existence as a spiritual character. Secondly, it also established the principle of care. Now, the Apostle Paul made that so powerfully clear when he referred to the process of the creation of Eve out of Adam, and he made the comment that this was a responsibility of the husband to care for the wife as if she were part of his very body. You know, it was actually a very brilliant process which the father instigated in Genesis chapter 2. Could you establish a more powerful way of demonstrating a closeness between a husband and wife than teaching the husband that it's like part of him. It's part of his own body. And therefore he needs to love and care for and nourish and cherish her. And those are established as roles for the male right from the beginning of the creation process. All right, well, what about on her part? Well, she knows that she's brought into being in a rather unusual way. So what influence would that have on Eve's personal perspective on their marriage relationship together? Do you think she'd feel any level of responsibility towards him at all? Do you think she'd think, feel that she had any, any sense of obligation to help him in his work when she realises that he'd actually given up part of himself so that she could come into being? And as a wife sees a husband being prepared to sacrifice things on her behalf, so that that feeling of responsibility, a reciprocation of responsibility, then develops. Do you think Eve would have felt some degree of gratitude towards Adam? Or feel a degree of dependence upon him? After all, she owed her very existence to the fact that she had come into being based on what he'd given her. 
And so we find two lives that at this point are now inextricably bound together. What powerful lessons there are for marriage in the truth today. Now, brothers and sisters, if we think about what those simple principles mean for us, if we, if we take them on board as our own personal marriage principles, they transform a marriage relationship. It's no longer about me and what I require from this relationship. It's about what I can do to help the other person. And no marriage will ever founder if it's based upon those principles mutually. And you know, it's so simple. It's the simple little principles that are laid out there in Genesis chapter 2. It's when suddenly the penny drops and we start thinking about the other person in the relationship rather than just myself. Now sure, we may from time to time still have some difficulties, some tensions, maybe even disagreements. We're human. But if these principles lie at the heart of our marriage, then every problem is surmountable. Every difficulty can be overcome. Because these principles have been laid down by God as the basis of a strong relationship. All right, whilst we are still here in Genesis chapter 2, it's worth noting again that these passages in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the simple creation record itself, lays down the fundamental concepts of leadership and submission. And it's a theme which just breathes out of the narrative. What happened and the order in which happened. And we've already seen the way in which the Apostle Paul was able to draw on these chapters to bring out these principles of leadership and submission. Just consider again these points and what they tell us. It was Adam's work, not Eve's work, which they were to be doing together. She was there to assist him, not the other way round. Adam was made first, and therefore he had a preeminence. Her existence was dependent on him. You know, all of these little things tell exactly the same story over and over again. Furthermore, as we saw in our study also, that these principles were then incorporated in the creation process itself in day four, with the respective roles of the sun and the moon. The sun, which is called the greater light, and the moon, which was called the lesser light. The sun, which is used in scripture as a representation of the power of the ruler, and the moon as a reflection of the glory of the sun. We just find that these principles of leadership and submission are just woven throughout the record in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, why is that important? Well, for a very important reason. It tells us that the principles of leadership and submission were not put in place as a result of the fall. They predated it. They're embedded in the principles that God established in the creation process in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So the appointment of the man as the head in that relationship was not merely some temporary consequence of sin. It wasn't just some form of punishment. It's actually a divine principle. And that divine principle transcends the fall. Now why is that important? Because sometimes when people try and turn these principles on their head, they say, ah, there it is, Genesis 3 verse 18, Eve's now subject to Adam and he's going to rule over him. Ah, that means it's a consequence of sin. And now that we're in Christ Jesus, the consequences of sin are removed. Of course, we're now all equal in Christ, misquoting Galatians, and therefore the principles of submission, once we're in Christ, no longer apply. Nope. Genesis 1, Genesis 2 are divinely instituted principles. They predate the fall. They're foundation principles that God has established as the basis of that relationship right from the beginning of the world. Now it is true, and we need to note this, that in the fall, in Genesis 3 verse 16, those principles are re-emphasized particularly to Eve. She's told that Adam, her husband, will rule over her. And so the idea of rulership is re-emphasized and reinforced in the consequences of the fall. Well, there's a reason for that. Partly because she had broken those principles in what had just transpired. And secondly, and it's not our topic this morning, but it's also partly introducing the roles of priesthood and restoration. 
All right, another question. Why did God make such a process of creating Eve out of Adam? We've already looked at the lessons that get derived from that. But of all ways that he could have created the woman, why did he have to choose that particular method of actually putting Adam asleep and out of his very being extracting something which then is developed to become his wife? Why do that? Well, you know, there's a very interesting and very profound answer to that. And it's made clear for us in a passage in Romans which refers to the creation process. When God created the world in six days, seventh day of rest, what did God use as a base for his creation? Did he make the world out of nothing, sort of spontaneous combustion in the air? Well, not according to the epistle to the Romans. Just look at these words from Romans 11, verses 34 to 36. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counsellor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that little phrase of him, XO, as it is in the Greek, literally means out of him. So the diaglot renders that in verse 36, because out of him, and through him, and for him are all things. God, as the energy source, is the creator. And out of that energy source, he was able to create the substance or the matter of all things. Out of him, they were created. So God created all things out of himself. Well, what does that remind us of? Then he turns around and he creates the wife for Adam out of Adam. And can you see the point? The relationship which God established between Adam and the wife who was created out of Adam is a reflection of the relationship that God wants to establish between himself and all created things which he generated. It's just teaching us the same principles over and over again. The relationship between male and female is a reflection of the relationship that the Almighty wants with his created beings. And you know, everywhere we look, we start to find the same message. So, for example, the little phrase in Genesis chapter 2, and they shall be one flesh. Is that that just a marriage principle for a husband and wife? Well, what does God want with us? Remember the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ? He said that they should be one, even as we are one. And what God wants is us to be one with him. It's exactly the same principle, again, established Uh, a divine principle that's embodied in this. And so, sisters, can you understand now why it is in that context that God decided that it was right and proper that roles of leadership and submission should be embedded into the marriage relationship itself? It's actually why wives are commanded to be in submission to their husband. In fact, as Paul says, even to be obedient to them. This is not some strange rule reflecting the tyranny of man. This is not some sort of of chauvinism. It simply reflects the divine principles of creation and it's put there to teach all of us a lesson. It's a reflection of the divine hierarchy. It's a reflection of the pattern that God wants us to reflect, the relationship between himself and us as his created beings. Well, at this point, we draw a rather deep breath and we say, okay, so if that's the case, then what's the counterpart? Well, on that basis, the husband simply has to carry out the functions of the Lord Jesus Christ and, in fact, of God himself, the Father himself, when he conducts himself in family life and in his marriage. As per Ephesians 5, it's simply a matter of reflecting the love that Christ shows for the ecclesia. Husbands, be prepared to give your entire life in total sacrifice for the development, salvation and well-being of your wife. Now those are fairly large shoes to fill. So wives, look at your husbands in that light. That your submission to him is because in your relationship, he's trying to occupy 
the position of God and Christ to the ecclesia. And he needs your help to achieve that. That's why you're there, as his helper and as his counterpart appointed by God. And that's why the Apostle says in Ephesians 5 and verse 22, Wives, and notice carefully the wording here, Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Because that's the role he's trying to fulfill in your household. And he needs your help to achieve that. Carries on to say, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the ecclesia, and he is the saviour of the body. All right, let's pick up that little phrase, wives, submit yourselves. Submission. Submission. That's a, that's a pretty challenging word to use, isn't it? There's a lot implied by the word submission. So what does this idea of submission actually entail? Well, there's a wonderful passage that we've just read together in the first epistle of Peter, which provides some great assistance to us in taking these principles and converting them to understand what it actually means in putting them into practice in our own limited lives. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and have a look at the essence that is conveyed here so well by the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter in chapter 3. Starting at verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Of, of the wives. So wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Now, at this point, it's possible for those men that Brother Roberts described as being both ignorant and tyrannical to say, yeah, that'll teach them. they just got to be in subjection and do what I say. Well, hold on, not so fast. To understand what's being conveyed here, we need to understand the context. We need to understand the foundation upon which this statement has been built. Because this statement is simply an extension of what's been covered in the previous chapter. It's made all the more powerful by the context within which it's framed. So let's go back to chapter 2 and look at the themes that start to emerge from chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. What the Apostle's saying here, brothers and sisters, is that a godly life has a very powerful impact on those that are around us. Having your conversation, he says, honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak of you as evildoers, they may, because of your good works, which they see, glorify God. So behaviour has a major impact on people who observe that behaviour. Now where it says there in verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, the word conversation and a strophe literally means a manner of life. It's conduct or it's behaviour. So there's a very simple principle being established here that by our behaviour, our way of life, we can have an impact on those around us and the end result was that they glorify God himself. All right, verse 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme, the governors, to them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and so forth. Verse 15, for so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, by the way, when it says there in verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance, the word submit there is the Greek word hupotasso. It literally means to be subordinate. It's actually a military term. To subject oneself to someone who is in a hierarchy over you. So be subordinate. Subject yourselves to the rule of law. 
But notice in verse 15 why again. That your well-doing may silence them. Again, it's the, it's the power of a godly way of life. Here's somebody who through submission and the way they are behaving is having an impact on those who observe them. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. The word subject there is exactly the same as submit in verse 13. It's hupotasso again. To submit to them. Notice here, it's submit to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. So here is someone who's demonstrating these principles of submission even to an unfair master. It's for the same reason. That by a godly conversation or way of life, they're able to demonstrate the principles to those who are around and who observe them. And then, in verse 21 to 25, he holds up the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who exemplified that godly spirit of submission. So he says, For even hereunto were ye called, verse 21, because Christ suffered for us, and he left us an example, so that we would follow in his steps. Now, what was his example? He did no sin, verse 22. There was no guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He committed himself to the righteous judge. So here is the extreme example of the Lord Jesus Christ who submitted himself to abuse and didn't open his mouth to revile, to justify himself or to hold up his own end at all. And then, having painted that context, the Apostle says, chapter 3, verse 1, remember there's no chapter breaks in the original, the very next message, likewise, chapter 3, verse 1, in the same way, just like I've been telling you, he says, wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without a word, be won by the conversation of the wives. And now he tells us that the same principles that he's been talking about in chapter 2 are to be illustrated in marriage relationships as well, when he instructs the wives to be in subjection to their own husbands. Now when it says be in subjection, surprise, surprise, it's exactly the same word, that came up in verse 13 and again in verse 18. And then he goes on to enrich our appreciation of what he's talking about when he talks about the spirit of submission. Because in verse 4 he speaks of the beauty of a meek and a quiet spirit. Can you see what he's telling us? He's saying that's the spirit of Christ. That's the spirit of Christ demonstrated in a marriage relationship on the part of a wife who submits her will to that of her husband. And then he reinforces the message by drawing on in verse 5 the example of holy women of old. And he uses Sarah, for example, uh, for us to learn the same lesson of. In fact, in verse 5, he talks about these being in subjection to their own husbands. And once again, it's exactly the same word, hupotasso. Now, this is a challenge. It can be very hard for a wife to submit to her husband. First of all, there is in all of us the natural response of our human mind, a response that wants to elevate and assert itself. Submission to anything is not natural, and so the flesh rebels against any notion of submission or subjection or restraint. So submission is not a natural response for any of us at all. And then when it comes to a marriage, well, well, what happens if I think he's wrong? In fact, when I know he's wrong, he often is ignorant man. So how can I submit to that? Well, to answer that question, the apostle draws on an example. And what an example. Do you notice in verse 1 that he doesn't say, Wives, as long as your husband is a stunning example of the perfection of Christ, 
splendid and perfect in all that he ever does, then and only then do you need to be in subjection to him. What does he say? He draws on an example where the husband is one who, and to quote him, obeys not the word. Diagot says, is disobedient to the word. Rotherham says, who yields not to the word. Is this an unbeliever? Perhaps. Is this someone who knows but is disobeying the word in some way? Perhaps. We don't know. But what we do know is that whatever the circumstance, this man is characterised by God as being disobedient to his word. So what then? And the Apostle's instruction here is to still be submissive so that your good behaviour can win him over. There are two very powerful reasons that he gives us. Firstly, he said, that's the Christ-like disposition illustrated at the end of chapter 2. And secondly, the point he's making, perfectly in context with chapter 2, is that your behaviour can be exceedingly powerful and can win someone over. Now note what it says there in verse 1. It says that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. When it says that they may be won, it's the Greek word kerdeno, and it literally means to gain or acquire. They may be gained or acquired. Gained for who? Gained for the wife? So she can display it like a trophy on her belt? Ha! I've won? Is that what's being talked about here? Well, of course not. This is someone here who does not obey God. These people, this man, may be gained by Christ. Instead of being a castaway, this can become another person who's able to be saved. Now, when it says, by your conversation, it's the same word as we came across in chapter 2, verse 12. Anastrophe, way of life or behaviour. He goes on to say in verse 2, by your chaste way of life, coupled with godly fear. Weymouth translates that so full of reverence and so blameless. And of course, when it says without the word, literally is without a word, it doesn't say don't ever talk. This is not saying, hey, let's do the no speakies. What's the first weapon that we reach for when we're aggrieved? The tongue. And the point that's being made here by the Apostle is that it's our behaviour which demonstrates so much the power of our convictions. And what's the context? Chapter 2, the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he suffered, opened not his mouth. So that's biblical advice for our sisters to change the way in which their husbands behave. Isn't that so different from the assertive way that this world would recommend to us. You know, it's Christ-like, through and through. Now, is there a guarantee that it will always work? And the answer, sadly, is no. There are men so obdurate that they will not respond. But it is the most powerful and effective way that's open to you. It's the way that will gain better results than any other, it may be that you've gained your husband for Christ. But either way, you will have gained the kingdom yourself. All right, well, let's think of the example of biblical sisters. Can you think of, of any biblical sisters who have encouraged godly behaviour and a godly atmosphere in their own home? Now, of course, Scripture just abounds with them if we spend some time looking carefully enough. Examples where the quiet word of the wife, her suggestion... Her influence has been then accepted and supported by her husband with some extraordinary results. Scriptures abound with these types of examples. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy about these examples is they were immensely faithful women. The mother of Moses, the mother of Samuel, the mother of Samson, the Shunammite woman, Sarah. These are the sort of characters that are held up in Scripture demonstrating the power of influence that a godly wife can have in the home. And the interesting thing is, as you read through the record, these are not brow-beaten wimps. They're not timid, subservient beings living in abject apprehension. 
We look at these examples and we find that they're courageous, they're perceptive, they're action-oriented, and in their faithfulness, they have the full support of their husbands. And in their actions, they're not passive and they're not insipid. Let's have a look at a few of these examples. First of all, I'm going to read to you a passage from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Now, if that was the only record we had, what would you see? You'd simply see a couple working together in faith. They saw he was a proper child. They were not afraid of the king's commandment. So they hid him for this period of three months. I'd like you to come back with me now to the actual record in Exodus chapter 2 and see what the record actually says. You know, it's quite surprising. Exodus chapter 2. start with verse 2. The woman conceived and bare a son and when she saw that he was a goodly child, she hid him for three months. Then what? When she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and daubed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. Whose work was it? Who was it that saw that he was a goodly child? What's the word telling us, brothers and sisters? It's telling us that this woman, this remarkable, faithful sister, was so moved by her maternal love for this child and her conviction in God's ability to save that her conviction had more power than the might of Pharaoh himself. And what we find is that with the full support of her husband, she was the one who hid him for three months. It's interesting as we read this through, there's no words here, there's just faithful action on the part of the wife. And yet we know from the quiet little comment in Hebrews chapter 11 that her husband supported her absolutely to the hilt. So much so that in Hebrews 11, the divine author could say that they did this together because they didn't fear the king. And what we find is that the resolute faith of this woman here in Exodus chapter 2 was manifested in an environment and a relationship where husband and wife were clearly, inseparably working together. Husbands, do we provide an environment which supports the resolute faith of our wives being manifested in the way that Amram did here for Jochebed? All right, well, let's have a look at another example. The next example is, again, truly remarkable. It's the story this time of Samuel and the rather amazing spirit of his mother. I'd like you to come with me to 1 Samuel and chapter 1. Now, in 1 Samuel, who was it that pleaded in anguish of spirit to be given a child? Of course, it was Hannah. Now, that's not surprising. After all, she was the one who had no child. Elkanah actually already had children to his wife Penina. So it's Hannah who pleads to Yahweh in anguish of spirit. And we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse 19 that Yahweh remembered her. And therefore she was given the blessing of her own little son. Well then we read in verse 22 that when Elkanah in verse 21 goes up with his house yearly to offer sacrifices. In verse 22 Hannah went not up. Because she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before Yahweh and there abide forever. So why didn't she go up? She didn't go up, brothers and sisters, because she had an objective. She had a purpose in her mind as to what she was going to do with that child. And she outlined the purpose to her husband. I'm going to wean the child. And then I'm going to take him up and give him to Yahweh so that he may abide there forever. Because of what Yahweh had done for her, she was going to give this child back to God himself. Now in verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, listens to her proposal and he supports it. 
but see the magnificent, magnificent spirit of this brother. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth to thee good. Tarry until thou have weaned him. Only Yahweh establish his word. What a magnificent example of a faithful man. Rock solid foundations in that household. That was this husband's perspective. May Yahweh establish his word. And therefore he supported the godly commitment of his wife. What an extraordinary example of a husband and a wife working together. Now I presume they said a little more to each other on this topic than the brevity of words recorded for us in verse 22 and 23. No doubt an awful lot more was said as this became the topic of discussion night after night after night rather than just two lines each. But the scripture has rendered it all down into two simple and powerful little statements of principle. And each of those statements packs an enormous punch. And the point of the divine record is this, brothers and sisters, that's the essence of the spirit of these two people. On the part of Hannah, an absolute giving of herself and her maternal love for this child in giving this child to Yahweh in gratitude for what he had done. And on the part of Elkanah, she's supported by that rock of commitment. Only may Yahweh establish his word. What a recipe in any home for outstanding results. Now, also, careful reading here. Notice something that's indicated by the record here in verses 22 and 23. It's something subtle, but it's very powerful and it's very insightful. Look at the precise order of the narrative. Firstly, the wife, Hannah, has made a suggestion. Secondly, the head of the house listens to the suggestion, the proposal... Thirdly, he gives it his blessing. And when he had given it his blessing, the record says, so the woman abode. You know, under the law of Moses, of course, in Numbers chapter 30, Elkanah had the, the right, the absolute right, to make her commitment void. But he chose not to do so. Numbers 30, verse 6. If she had it all in her husband when she vowed or uttered aught out of her lips wherein she bound her soul and her husband heard it and held his peace at her in the day that he heard it, then her vows shall stand and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. But if her husband disallowed her on the day that she heard it, that he heard it, then he shall make her vow which she vowed and that which she uttered with her lips wherewith she bound her soul of none effect, and Yahweh shall forgive her. And in this case, Elkanah listened, and he heard, and his response was, may Yahweh establish his word. We've got a really interesting example here, brothers and sisters, of the, of the interrelationship, the working together of a faithful husband and wife, working together wonderfully. And it also, at the same time, still illustrates for us the respective roles of both wife and husband in a family unit. So we look at that story and we realise actually this is a woman who was in subjection to her husband. But submission does not stop godly endeavour and nor does it restrict remarkable heights of spiritual commitment. So working within the confines of the principles God has established still gives scope for forthright commitment to the things of God. But its richest outcome required a husband who understood what was going on and supported his wife in that endeavour. Only may Yahweh establish his word. It is a wonderful working together of the two of them. All right, well, one of the, the most wonderful examples or contributions that a, uh, that a woman can make, a wife can make to a home, is for have her influence to be exerted in a way that it brings the things of the truth strongly into the home. And sisters, if you want a real-life practical demonstration of what it means to be a helpmate, 
then we don't need to look any further than the story of the woman of Shunem in 2nd of Kings chapter 4. <clears throat> now for those who were at the McNabb Fraternal Day a few days ago, uh, we looked at the story of the woman in Shun- of Shunem. But for those that weren't, it's worth us looking briefly again at the record in 2nd of Kings and chapter 4. 2nd <clears throat> of Kings and chapter 4. Now we know that when Elisha passed through the area of Shunem, in verse 8, he comes to Shunem, And this woman, the woman of Shunem, constrained him to come and eat bread. It means to urge or to press him to come and together for a meal. She urged him to stay for a meal. Now the generous spirit of this woman is very obvious. So much so that the travelling prophet, in future, when he came through the area of Shunem, would turn aside to eat a meal together in their place. Turn thither to eat a meal. Now at this stage, of course, she doesn't understand he's the man of God. She simply sees a need. She's got the wherewithal to satisfy it, and so she doesn't hesitate. She's wonderfully hospitable. But she's not just hospitable, she's also perceptive. So in verse 9, she says to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is an holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. And so the record tells us that she prevails on her husband to make a place, not just to clear some space, not just remove a few things from the couch, but to build a place, to make a place in their household for the holy man of God. Now that's the mark of a truly spiritual person. I want to make a place in my home for the influence and the presence of the holy man of God to come and dwell. That's the effect of a godly wife. Now notice, by the way, she doesn't build this room herself. She makes the suggestion to her husband. And encouraged by her, he then builds this place. A place for the man of God to come and stay in their household. It was that spirit which then brought God's blessing into that household. And ultimately blessed them with a child they'd been unable to have. Now brothers and sisters, isn't that what we want inside our households, inside our families? Don't we want the influence of the man of God to come inside our homes and to dwell there? Well, it doesn't happen by itself. We have to make a place in our homes for that influence to be able to come in and dwell and become part of our household. We need to deliberately reach out and bring the influence of the holy man of God inside our family homes. But for the purpose of what we're looking at this morning, just note this one thing. That it was the power of her influence which encouraged her husband to prepare that place in their household for that influence. It's a very powerful illustration for us of what a godly woman can achieve in a home. She's clearly a woman of initiative here, but that sterling initiative and her faith operated within a sphere, and that sphere was her role within the family and her encouragement to her husband to build that place in their family home. Well, sisters, as wives... What can you do today to bring the influence of the man of God inside your home and inside your family? You're not likely to have Elisha dropping in on you. And the opportunity to build another room on the housetops is not to be had that frequently. So what can you do to encourage your husband in your home to bring those influences inside the family home? Space for the man of God. Well, after tea, when Dad's not long home from work, he's busy, he's distracted, he's tired. He's thinking about everything that he's got to do tonight. The children are about to disappear off in ten different directions to do all the things that have got to be done. Whose quiet voice is it who says, as the dishes are being cleared away, it'd be nice if we could do a reading just now. Just that simple little comment. Brothers, I challenge you to ignore that little quiet voice. Because you know that she's right. And you also know what the long-term consequences will be for your household if you turn that simple little request down. It's an irresistible force. Just that simple little comment. You know, the little suggestions that a wife makes, the little things that are done in the family... The quiet influence in a family home
can be absolutely immense. Well, let's try another example. It's Bible class tonight. The family's tired. There's homework which needs to be done. There's an assignment due in for one of the children. This particular child needs a bath. Dad's arriving home late. He comes in just a few minutes before he needs to leave to go to Bible class. They gulp down some tea. He throws a vague kiss in the direction of his wife. Love you and leave you. And he dashes out the door to try and get to the Bible class. In that scenario, how do you get your whole family together to be able to attend Bible class together? Well, it's not going to happen unless earlier in the day the wife has said to herself, I want our family to go to the Bible class tonight. So she does everything she can on top of all the other pressures that are on her that afternoon to try and make sure that the family is actually ready and prepared organised enough to be able to get out to Bible class. The younger children organised, things planned, so that when her husband does come in late, it's actually still possible for the family to have tea and also all manage to get in the car, remarkably with everything that has to be gathered, and still turn up at the hall on time or thereabouts. The role that a wife plays in a family home, is absolutely vital in bringing the influence of the man of God to dwell inside the family home. You know, these are the sort of things that the meek and quiet spirit that Peter speaks about excels. There's the wonderful power and influence of of a wife who says, actually, that's what I want to set my heart to be able to achieve. Now, of course, it's up to all of us to work out how to apply these principles in our own homes. Every household's different. The dynamics of every household are different. But there's no question about the powerful influence of a committed system. Proverbs 12 verse 4. A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. Now we've all heard of the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, haven't we? If you'll excuse the pun, of course she's become proverbial. The virtuous woman. Do you know what the very first attribute is in scripture? The very first demonstra- uh, or, or description in Proverbs 31 is of the faithful, of the virtuous woman? What's the very first attribute that's listed? Is it her industriousness? Let's turn it up. Is it her care for her children? Is it her diligent support of others? Is it her care for the poor? Let's have a look at Proverbs 31. Verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman? Her price is far above rubies. First attribute. Verse 11. The heart... Of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. That's the first attribute listed, sisters. It has to be one of the strongest principles of the role of a wife. She does not undermine her husband. She does not give her loyalty to another. He can trust her with all of his heart. Her support, her integrity, her admiration, and her love. She's a safe harbour for his heart to be able to trust in and for his emotions. So the record says that she will do him good. Now, wives, never underestimate how much your husband depends on you in hidden and often invisible ways, ways you may not even be conscious of. And not just in practically helping him with his tasks, although that, of course, is is immensely valuable, but in more hidden ways. You are intrinsically linked to the development of his confidence, his hopes, and his aspirations. And it is extraordinary how through the adornment of a meek and a quiet spirit, through submission and good work, a wife can strengthen her husband. How? Well, be interested in and supportive of what he's doing in ecclesial life. It doesn't matter what sphere of ecclesial life that might be. Be interested in how he's going with it. So he's doing the recording tonight, and you just happen to tell him that Sister Betty was thrilled to get that CD of the Bible class, that it's going to be a great help to her during the course of the week. And he feels, what I did was worthwhile. Or it's a Bible class or a lecture that he's just given Talk about what went well and be interested in the topic. 
And, and we all know this, don't we? There are ways of doing this, and there are ways of not doing this. So I'm being the spiritual wife. I'm showing you that I'm very encouraging. In your Bible class tonight, dear, you know, you, you really could have made such a marvellous point about this aspect over here, such and such. You had a great point you really could have made. It's a pity that you missed it. By implication, I am so much more perceptive than you are. It's a great pity that you missed that point. Well, there are ways and means, aren't there? And sisters, wives, you probably know that. And I guarantee that your husbands do as well. Genuine interest and genuine appreciation for what your husband contributes to family and ecclesial life goes a long way. It has a very profound impact. And it's remarkable how that encouragement, that positive encouragement, can double what your husband is actually capable of doing. Just imagine you come across a scenario where you, you come across a sister who's, who's quite disappointed in her husband. She doesn't feel that he's up to speed or he's not as good as other brothers. Aren't comparisons odious things? And it just so happens that she's quite happy to voice her opinion or, worse still, more subtly display it. And you listen, you look, you observe, and you can't help wondering, well, sister... Perhaps the way you're conducting yourself might be undermining your husband. Ironically, perhaps even ensuring that he will never be the person you would like him to be. Never able to meet your ambitions. It almost can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whilst we were there in Proverbs, let's have a look in Proverbs 31 and verse 23. Interesting little phrase. Verse 23 her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. Now, isn't that an interesting comment to make when it's talking about a list of her attributes or her features? Because, you see, they're linked. The way in which she conducts herself in their relationship has an enormous impact on what he is capable of doing. The attributes of a faithful wife enable her husband to take on roles in ecclesial life. And her behaviour towards him then becomes a key determinant that makes him suitable for ecclesial duties. Now that's why, of course, that we have Paul writing on the record to Timothy and to Titus. When the Apostle's speaking about the roles of bishops and deacons, he points out that the demeanour and the behaviour of the wives is a critical component in identifying somebody's suitability to be able to perform ecclesial duties and functions. Doesn't that give us some food for thought? We read before from Proverbs chapter 12, a virtuous woman is a crown to her husband. That was only half the verse. She that maketh ashamed is as rottenness in his bones. We don't have the time to look at it, but a very graphic and, and disturbing example of that was David's wife, Michael, uh, back in 2 Samuel chapter 6. All right, at that point, brothers, we need to turn the spotlight very firmly back to look at our husband's. Brothers, what can we do in our family homes to make it easy for our wives to respect, love and admire us? Have we ever thought to ask them that? Are there things that we could do or change to help them develop that spirit? I suspect that for most of us the answer is probably yes. Well, let's conclude by going back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Because having spoken about the role of the wife, the apostle then turns his attention back to the husband. Just one little verse, very simple little words. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honour unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Now this is a very rich verse, and we don't have time this morning to look at many of the aspects that are in it. We want to just focus on one little concept. It's the concept there of the weaker vessel. Giving honour unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. You see, husbands, when our wives submit to us, as their husbands, they're trusting us. And if there's anything that stands out in Scripture, it's this. 
that the behaviour of a husband has its first and greatest impact on the wife. She's there for the duration of the journey. So she experiences the highs and the lows of his personal life. And our faith, or our folly, husbands, leaves its indelible mark or impression on our wives. The consequences of our behaviour are carried directly by them. And so Peter says, give honour to them. Now the word honour means preciousness, value or worth. Is that how we see our wives? It's saying, husbands, value and treasure what you've got. Value, put a great worth on what you have and understand her need to be able to trust the fact that you will look after her as someone who is, because she submitted to you, now in the role of the weaker vessel. Husbands and wives treasure each other. We're joined together for the journey of life. And when the journey is done, our hope and prayer is that we can then rejoice together in the kingdom with our families. And surely that has to be our fervent prayer. In those beautiful and sublime words of the Apostle, heirs together of the grace of life.